The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the leadership of George Washington. The British had left and the revolution was won, but the freedom that was fought so hard for was in danger of a mighty implosion. The 13 states were still thinking like 13 separate states. And if our new nation was to survive, it would take something special, someone special to get the government on the right track. Politics, personalities, and personal agendas. Our nation's first POTUS uses his own power and prestige to fight through it all. The American Cincinnatus, George Washington. He's on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We're incredibly honored to have another Pulitzer Prize-winning author joining us here on American POTUS. Ed Larson is a professor of history and law at Pepperdine University. He's written or co-written 14 books and over 100 articles for a wide range of publications such as The Atlantic, Nature, Scientific American, and many, many others. There have been a lot of really terrific books written about our first POTUS, but his is certainly one of our favorites. It's titled The Return of George Washington, 1783 to 1789. We'll link to this title as well as the rest of Professor Larson's works on our website, AmericanPOTUS.com. Ed, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us to talk about our first POTUS. Welcome. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on your program. Ed, a few years ago, I was at a place I know we both love, and that's Mount Vernon. And I was asking some folks there, among the many great books they sell, which ones they would suggest. And above all, they said, you must try The Return of George Washington. And that's why, where I found this book, and I absolutely loved it, and appreciate you joining us on American POTUS. Well, I thank you, and I'm glad they're saying good things about me at Mount Vernon. <laughs> they are. They <laughs> it, are. Is a, it is a wonderful, it's a yeah, special place. It really is. Now, Washington's voluntary resignation at the end of the revolution just amazed the world. What explains why Washington returned to private life at Mount Vernon rather than taking the path of so many others in history like a Caesar or a Napoleon? Like so many things in Washington's life, his sense of Republican virtue, he had a tremendous sense of what was right and what was virtuous, uh, what would set an example. How should people act in a republic? And remember, a republic was was fairly new at the time in the sense that, sure, there'd been the Roman Republic and Greek Republic that Americans, especially educated Americans, venerated at that time. And there were places like that extolled Republican virtues still, like Venice, say, or Switzerland. It was that sense, really drawn as much from the classics as anything else, that Washington looked for. And he already viewed himself a little bit like the great Roman general Cincinnatus, who was twice called from his farm to, in the deepest crises of Rome, to Republican Rome, to lead, uh, to save the place militarily, and then went back to his farm. And for that, he was, he was glorified in contrast to a Caesar or somebody else who grasps power. And Washington believed that America was something new under the sun, that America was experienced an experiment in Republican democracy, and he wanted civilian rule. He didn't want military rule. He did not think like a Napoleon would later or Cromwell did earlier. And he wanted to establish that principle of civilian rule by when the war ended, when he could have tried to stay on, went to Congress and voluntarily surrendered his sword. Now, in addition to that, and I do think that that conceptually was how he thought, he also was a very realistic politician, as it were. He had a political background. He'd served in the state legislature. He'd been elected to the 
First and Second Continental Congress. And the United States back then was sort of, was different than Rome in the sense that there really was, if you tried to take over the place militarily, that's not the way Americans think then. They, they, they had revolted against King George and basically Washington, after failing badly in New York, had adopted a Fabian strategy where he just fell back because he knew or believed that the people were on his side. And so the British could march around with their army, basically take whatever they want, take Charleston or Savannah or, or, or Philadelphia or, or, or New York. But once they'd leave an area, the people would go right back, I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> to American yeah. rule. Yeah. And so as a practical matter, he had to understand that Americans did not want a military dictator. And so effectively, I don't think he could have taken power. Interesting. Yeah. So when he did put down his sword like Cincinnati and go back to Mount Vernon, what did he return to? First of all, was it the structure that we know today? Yes, it is similar to the structure today. He, he did expand it, but it was already a impressive estate. He had already added considerable lands to it, so it covered much more territory than it does now. It was it was really five farms linked together, which is that whole area of suburban uh, Washington now, to suburban D.C. Uh, grain mill. Uh, you can visit the grain mill. The grain mill is in an isolated tract of land away from it. The grain mill was actually almost in the middle of what was this all uh, wheat farms and, and grain farms by that time. It started as a tobacco uh, plantation, but that didn't work. And his predecessors, his brother and his father, never had the, uh, uh, the wisdom or, or, or entrepreneurial sense to shift over to wheat, which was much more productive, and his grain mill and eventually his large um, distillery, which which you could also still visit, where he became the largest whiskey distiller in the uh, in America, and which was a very very good cash crop. In in short, he had turned it into a profitable plantation the, on what had been marginal soil. The problem was that with it required he was a good manager. He was a hands on manager and a good manager. He would tour the farm on horseback. It was a very large farm. He would tour the farm on horseback every day and sort of observe what was happening and sort of direct what was happening. And when he wasn't there, it had slipped into not being profitable. And so he needed to come back. Um, it, the building wasn't damaged. The British had landed um, one time, but they didn't destroy the building. And uh, he had to come back and uh, sort of shake things up and restore it to profitability. He had a, a large number of slaves, as you know, between his and, and his wife. He'd married a, a wealthy wid widow who brought with her a couple hundred slaves. He had so it was like 300, which was really more than he needed um, after it was no longer a tobacco plantation. Wheat doesn't require as much many workers. Um, he had to sort of whip it into shape. And, but it was a beautiful place. He was land rich. He was, he, he had extensive frontier land holdings. He was, a, he, he had invested in the frontier. He had acquired property there, both as grants and, and by purchase. Um, he just, it just wasn't turning out the money that it should. The frontier lands weren't turning out the rents they should. And he had to go there. He also went out to his frontier lands to sort of shake things up and get things operating. And he, he did that, but it required a lot of work. But it's a beautiful place, as you know. And after the war, he was, you know, world famous. And everybody wanted to come down and visit him. So he was, he had to balance all of his time working on the farm. And he would start early in the morning with his rounds. And then he'd basically spend the afternoon entertaining guests who would come. Since there was no inn nearby, most of them would end up staying in Mount Vernon. So he did expand it and shift it somewhat. If you go there, if you're looking at it um, with the with the river behind you, I mean, not um, and so you were looking up and seeing that wonderful portico. The on your left, you've got he added he built a ground floor office and a bedroom for himself and Martha above it, and then he had this center part which was mostly for guests and, and receptions and his, his wife's 
children by the previous grandchildren by the previous marriage because her son had died. The, the grandchildren lived there. And then on the far right side, the other side, he built a large, beautiful dining room that he could hold large banquets. And so he turned it in to, as I'm sort of describing, as a public place, but also where he could write his letters. He remained, he was the center of the movement for a new constitution. He was a center despite being retired and having to maintain the plantation, which took half his day. And entertaining took half his day. He also maintained this extensive correspondence and was avid reader of newspapers. So he followed everything that was happening in the country. And he was sort of orchestrating the move that he had launched in his last year as governor with his circular letters to the states to reform the Confederation into an effective, centralized, invisible union of, of states, which would become, of course, uh, lead to the Constitutional Convention, which he chaired. Well, why was Washington able to see those inadequacies, the need to move toward that earlier than others, on a, both on a personal and a philosophical level? He was there very early on, knowing that change was needed. Wonderful question. And you're right, he was there early on. There were some others, but this it's the same reason for all of them. He had experienced the deficiencies of the Confederation as general, that Congress could not pay his troops. And he found that absolutely appalling. His troops who were fighting and dying and sacrificing for the country simply did not get paid for the last years of the war. There was no money to pay them because the government did not have the power to tax. They could only ask the states to give them money. And, you know, in times of crisis early on, when they thought things were going to fall apart after, say, after the battles in New York, some of the states paid up. But once, once you've won the war, or once the war is being won, and that was true after Yorktown for the last two years while he still had an army, there's no incentive for the states to pay. They're going off on their merry way because each one of them is sovereign. Under the Articles of Confederation, the central government is simply, to use the phrase drawn right from the Articles of Confederation, simply a league of friendship. It's like the United Nations. And you know now, nations don't pay their obligations to the UN. Well, they didn't back then. And so they, um, the government, they couldn't pay the troops. Uh, and and they couldn't pay back the people, the Americans who had loaned money for the war. And that Washington was, I had already said, virtue was one of his characteristics. And one of the things a virtuous person does is pay back their debts. And you also pay the soldiers. And the fact that the soldiers weren't being paid was ab absolutely devastating to them. Beyond that, on a, there's two other things I'd add that all appeared to him early. One, of course, was the government couldn't pay their debts and couldn't pay his soldiers. Second, he, because of his massive wheat enterprise and his grain mills, he exported wheat throughout the colonies, even over to Europe and as far away as China. The central government, such as it was, under the Articles of Confederation, had no power to control interstate commerce or international commerce. They couldn't put a tariff on foreign goods coming into America, and they, therefore they couldn't retaliate when other countries put a tariff on our goods. So they couldn't control international commerce, but they couldn't even control interstate commerce so that New York could put a tariff on anything coming in from Connecticut or New Jersey to New York Harbor, which they did to raise funds for their, to basically export the taxes to pay for their state, making New York a very successful state. Um, the, so if you, if you couldn't trade freely, and when Washington tried to build a canal to carry goods from, the, from across the mountains down through the Potomac River, Potomac River Canal, it goes, up the, it goes on the borderline between Maryland and, and Virginia. Well, the two states could impose different taxes. They had different money. They all produced their own money. They could, how could you have interstate commerce? How could you have trade? The result was each state basically pulled itself in. And in the times of economic crisis during the 1780s, 
were like an island to themselves. And what Washington believed is you needed to grow the economy. You needed to make a national market economy, which of course was one of the two great legacies of his presidency, a national market economy under Hamilton's plan, so that there would be, so you would create a free trade within the United States and therefore build national commerce, national enterprise, and also put a tariff so you could raise money on foreign goods, cheap out, develop, therefore, American products, American, America first, build up manufacturing by tariffs coming in from overseas, and also prevent other countries from imposing too big a tariffs on our exports. The third, and that was all clear, that all became clear during this Confederation period. And finally, as I mentioned, Washington took his first opportunity to go out to the frontier to visit his extensive land holdings on the Ohio River Valley on the other side of the Appalachians. When he got there, it was nothing but trouble. Nobody cared what he did. He, the first place he went, you know, his local agent had had allegedly rented out the land, but was keeping all the amounts for himself. Um, and, and he basically said, what can you do? How can you collect? There's no courts over here. You have no army over here. And then he went to his second place and there were a bunch of, it had been occupied by a sort of a millennium, millennialist religious group. And they wouldn't pay him anything. They said, you're not here. God's given us the right to this land. And he couldn't get rid of them because there was no, there was no government west of the, even though it was American territory all the way to the Mississippi under the um, peace treaty with Britain, the United States didn't have an army because we couldn't afford one because we couldn't raise taxes. And then he tried to go to his third ter- third piece of property, the biggest one, further down on the Ohio River. And he was advised partway there, you can't go any further. The Native Americans are lying in wait for you. They're going to capture <laughs> you. And they, of course, hated him because he had had very poor relations with the Native Americans during the Revolutionary War. But to show the importance of it, his previous agent managing that land had the year before been captured by the Native Americans and had been roasted alive on a split on a spit oh, and um, with his with various parts of his body cut off until he died. And Washington didn't want any of that, but there was no army to protect him. And that Native Americans had reoccupied the land as they had most of Georgia and, you know, moved back into the Ohio country. So Washington had to go back and he said, you know, he believed deeply, as did many others like Franklin, that America's future was on the frontier, that the that what made America different was that Americans could always go west and get new land and therefore remain equal. It was a land of opportunity, unlike England, where you were trapped and, you know, you were born a, a virtually a serf working on a uh, on a on a large manor, and you had to keep doing that. Or you're, you were born, you know, whatever your parents were, you were going to be. If your parent was king, you're going to become king. If your parent was a lord, you're going to be a lord. If your parent was a serf, you're going to be a serf. There's no opportunity because there's no, no. But what made America different was the frontier. Washington believed this. They believed instinctively in the frontier thesis. So, and remember, that's why the revolution, one of the causes of the revolution, the proclamation of, of 1763, preventing the Americans from, from uh, the colonialists from settling west of the, the uh, Appalachian Mountains. And so Washington wanted to open the frontier, and you could only do it if you had a stronger central government that could raise taxes, have an army, and progressively open the frontier for settlement. No state could possibly have the power or even the willingness to invest in the frontier because it wasn't theirs, that the states had already turned over the land west of the Appalachians to the central government. So it wasn't, you know, there's no way Virginia or Pennsylvania could open the frontier. So those those three things, his, his immediate preliminary, uh, familiarity with the problem of repaying our debts and mm-hmm. doing true justice, the, the problems of trade, interstate and international commerce, and defending America, opening the frontier, and of course, defending the boundaries from the British in Canada and the Spanish in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in Florida. So these things he personally experienced. And for those reasons and others, but those would be the primary, 
he thought we needed a stronger national government. And every one of those three is what he tackles as president. What about his concern about internal dissent, especially the Shays Rebellion? How did that factor into that? Well, that was sort of the exclamation point up on the end of a long sentence. He was already fully committed to a stronger constitutional union. He had been ever since he wrote the circular letter of the states way back when he was still general before stepping down in 1783. The movement has already moved toward, he's basically been communicating with fellow thinking nationalists. The call has already gone out for a constitutional convention. And then Shays' Rebellion happens. And Shays' Rebellion is sort of the exclamation point. It's sort of it gave re, it it underscored the need for all this because here you had army veterans their land being taken away from them because of the deflation that hit massachusetts because of its inability to deal with foreign export exports and the the crisis caused by the economic collapse which was largely due to the lack of a strong central government and then they didn't have immediately the, the, the forces to put it down. And so in so many ways, he believed that a strong national government could address all the things that give the disorder because he had been saying for four years that under the Confederation, we the Union cannot hold. The Union will collapse and we will have an anarchy from a laxity of government to him, Shays' Rebellion was just sort of the example that proved what he'd been arguing already. So as he made that move toward advocating for a strong national government, who were his allies and what tools did they use, what weapons to get us from that thought to the actual convention? Well, certainly locally, James Madison was an important ally. James Washington was a big picture guy, a visionary. James Madison was a detailed man. He was a, a, worked wonders in committees. He was a manipulator. He was a political wonk, you'd say, today. And so he could work out a lot of the details and the vision. Um, so he was a key ally. In Pennsylvania, Ben Franklin thought the same way in large terms about the, the absolute, for many of the same reasons, the need for a strong, centralized national government. He'd been advocating that ever since the he made that wonderful join or die cartoon way back in the 1750s. And so he was an important ally, but more on the policy wonk side, he had governor, not governor, but governor was his first name, Governor Morris, Robert Morris, of course, in Philadelphia, and James Wilson um, were important allies. Hamilton will become one. Washington was still alienated from Hamilton because of you know issues during the war. But at Philadelphia, when they're both there, they will become important allies. To an extent, Edmund Randolph, the governor of Virginia, was certainly supportive at the beginning. There were various people from Massachusetts, Rufus King, who were, who were supportive. Then there were some of the governors around, like uh, he was close with the governor of New Hampshire and the governor Trumbulls of Connecticut. And so these were, these were allies, uh, Pinckney, the Pinckneys in South Carolina, and he would he would communicate regularly with these, and then of course, then I should add two more, um, because they were very involved in the Articles of Confederation Congress. the The Secretary of State, as it were, Foreign Minister at the time, John Jay, was an, was a brilliant man from New York and an important ally. And um, Henry Knox, who had been his top lieutenant during the Revolution chief artillery officer, the fellow who brought the cannons down from Ticonderoga and drove the British out of Boston. And then he had gone on after Washington retired, he becomes the commander in chief of the army and remains that or a war minister during the Articles of Confederation. And both of these insiders, Jay and Knox, are in regular communication. And indeed, it was Jay, Knox and Madison, who the three of them separately, just before the um, convention, as the convention was being planned and orchestrated, they both, they all three of them, at Washington's request, submitted to Washington draft constitutions or the things they, the, the, the structures that they wanted for the, that they thought were needed for the constitution. And Washington took those, they were very similar, both called for a two house legislature, a judiciary, an independent executive. 
um, and different factors. And he sort of took them and he lined them up and made a graph where he had those three and then sort of the combined structure. And that is what he took to Philadelphia as sort of his, I guess you'd say, his working draft. When he gets to the convention, how did Washington influence the proceedings there? And in particular, I've always been curious, how did he impact the the proceedings as they drew up the new office of the presidency? Washington was the presiding officer. So that means technically he cannot speak. He, he just calls on people. And that makes him seem invisible in Madison's notes of the convention, for example. But think of it like the House of Representatives today. The Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, can't speak on the floor, but everybody knows she's running the place. And Washington was like that. He gets to call on people when they speak. He's meeting with people every night. Uh, He is, and so he's calling on people in a sequence. So he he called on Edmund Randolph to present the Virginia plan at the outset. He would call on Governor Morris with this compromise when you needed to break a stalemate. And or he would call on Ben Franklin or he would call on um, Wilson. He had met with them. He constantly was talking with them. He was he was working with them before in the evening. Uh, He was he ate. he, he, He didn't stay off. He was staying at Robert Morris's house. He didn't stay there. He went and ate with the delegates at their at their at their inns or or. uh, like City Tavern, which is still there in Philadelphia, and you can eat at. I recommend it. Um, Washington did, and um, Washington ate here. You could say. Right, right. So, um, and so he was managing the um, the affair. And when you look at the final product and you compare it with his circular letters to the states or his various statements before, he got everything he wanted. He began. He wasn't a detailed person, so he didn't. He didn't care that much and was willing to compromise on things like, you know, the exact structure of the Senate or something like the Electoral College. I mean, he didn't get into the weeds, but the big picture, it was his vision carried through and executed. So he orchestrated it basically behind the scenes and by who he put on committees and by when he called on people. And he did care he always knew he would be the first president under it. And he wanted a strong presidency. And as one of the people there, Pierce Butler of South Carolina said afterward, shortly afterward, we never would have created such a strong presidency because of all of our distrust of what the King George had done. We never would have created such a strong presidency except we were sitting there during the convention, looking up at George Washington and knowing we could trust him with power. Well, we know that getting the Constitution written was just the first part of that battle. Then we had the ratification debates, and Washington played a, a large role in those as well. What Can you tell us about that role he played? It was the same sort of role that he played at the convention, in a way. It was a behind-the-scenes role. He would write letters. He would call up. He would distribute um, particularly good essays or editorials. There were a lot of letter writers. There were a lot of essayists. And if he liked an essay, he would send it out to other newspapers and said, you should print this. Or when James Wilson gave a particularly good speech um, in Pennsylvania, (laughs) he would distribute it. He urged Madison, Hamilton, and Jay to write something, a group of essays that became the Federalist Papers. He would also send letters of advice and encouragement if a convention would seem to be going off the rails, like he gave sort of procedural advice to to Benjamin Lincoln, who was a lead Federalist at the Massachusetts State Convention, which was a close one. He basically insisted that James Madison, who didn't like the public space, he insisted that he go to um, the Virginia Convention, that he run and get elected. And Madison didn't like to do that because he wasn't sort of a public person. Insisted that he go go to the convention, get elect, get himself elected, go as a delegate to the convention, and then basically answer Patrick Henry, who opposed, violently opposed the new constitution, basically answer Henry point for point. And that's a tough thing to do because Henry is a dogmatic, um, blustering, um, disorganized, but very emotional and powerful speaker. 
charismatic speaker, but it's, it's, it's shotgun. It's effective, but it's all over the place. And trying to cabin him down and answer him point by point is a real battle. But Madison does a remarkably good job of it, how he gets some help. For example, Washington sort of persuades Edmund Randolph, who had who finally broke off because he didn't think he thought the that at the convention he had offered the Virginia plan, but the Virginia plan had the president be picked by the legislature, sort of like Parliament does with the with the with the um, with the uh, prime minister or Canada or Germany, wherever um, that you have today. And that was the Virginia plan. And that's what Randolph liked. And then it moves to a separately chosen president with independent authority and a lot of it. And that breaks Randolph off. So he doesn't support it in the end, as well as for other reasons as well. But that was probably the primary. He called the American presidency, even though he trusted Washington, he called the American presidency as written in the Constitution at the convention. He called it the fetus of monarchy, and that it would lead that way, and he didn't like that. Um, but he persuades Randolph, who, would have, who was governor and would have been in, very influential, to flip sides. It's generally, it's, a lot of people suspect that he offered Randolph to be attorney general if he would agree to um, switch shift sides. Of course, he does become attorney general, the first attorney general. Um, but so he, he gets involved that deeply of encouraging individual people, working with John Marshall, for example, who was at the convention. So he works in different states. He sends letters. He especially is involved with Virginia. And everyone agrees, whether you're on his side, whether you're for convention ratification or not, at the end, everyone agrees that the only reason the Constitution was ratified in Virginia was because of Washington. Mattis Monroe, who's a lead opponent, says that. So does some of the others. So does Benjamin Harrison, another lead opponent, former governor. And it was very close, just a few votes. But Washington turned the tide. He doesn't go himself because, you know, first, everyone knows he's going to be president. It would look self-serving. It wouldn't have good optics. But also, Washington was not a debater. He was not. He, that was not his skill. He actually wasn't a very good public speaker. He was a good writer. And certainly with the help of aides, he turned out some amazing documents like his farewell speeches or his um, first inaugural. Beautiful, beautiful speeches and beautiful letters. But he wasn't a public speaker. Remember, you know, his teeth. He couldn't even hardly open his mouth or his teeth would fall out. You know, they were uh, terrible dentures. And it was all anchored on one remaining tooth on the left wow. side. So he really couldn't open his mouth and talk. He was, an, he was a good conversationalist if he could sort of talk in his mumble and you could hear him close up. But so he would, it would have been a disaster for him to be the convention. And, and if one thing, there are many attributes of Washington, but the man had style. What did Adams once say about him? He was asked about Washington and he just sort of tilted his head the way Adams always would. And he said, well, in, um, in Virginia, all geese are swans. <laughs> <laughs> and he was speaking about Washington. He also yeah. said of Washington that Washington... And Adams, you know, was a wand a long time and he involved with a lot of people. And he said that George Washington was the best political actor he ever saw. He just had this style. And and it, it's not he, he's better off sitting presiding over a convention or being president um, than, he, you know, he wouldn't be good descending into the debate. He would be chewed to pieces by Patrick Henry. And so he stayed away, but he didn't really stay away. He was his tentacles, his were into the into every corner of the convention in Richmond, and they were involved elsewhere and in every state. If you read the newspapers, in every state, um, the argument for the Federalists were, well, of course you can trust this because it comes from Washington and Franklin. And those were the only two national heroes from the revolution. They were the only two American heroes. They're the only two people known every state. So those two, Franklin and Washington, had a national voice. And they were both for it. And if they were for it, people trusted the two of them. And they knew there was daylight. Washington would be, say, right of center and Franklin slightly left of center. And so between them, you, you, know, you had to adopt it because they were the two most trusted people in America. And Washington continued that that work to get a, a favorable Congress as the as the government was put together. Absolutely. He was he wanted a he very much wanted 
a Federalist-minded Congress because he believed that the Anti-Federalists who came close to disrailing, I mean, you know, the convention, the Constitution only passed by a few votes in, in, in Massachusetts and, and Virginia, and, it, and if it hadn't passed in those two, it would have definitely failed in New York. So there's three of the four biggest states, so we would never have had a country. But he's afraid that they're going to lie in wait and take over the Congress and derail things, and he's going to be president, so he wants a supportive Congress, so he becomes very involved in recruiting people to run. Again, poor Madison, he absolutely insists on Madison run for Congress, and he has to, and Patrick Henry's controlling the state, so Patrick Henry gerrymanders the state before Jerry ever ma- gerrymandered <laughs> right. Massachusetts. It should be called harrymandering. He did the most impo- amazing job, and he threw poor Madison in this and and he ruled and he declared that you had to live in your congressional district, which violates the Constitution. But Madison followed. And so Madison's home was in the very tail end of a district designed to be anti-federalist. And he and he and Monroe, the future president, James Monroe, ran against him. And Madison, who didn't like the campaign, had to go all over that district campaign <laughs> and with Washington's help carefully using arguments that he and Jefferson had created the um, disestablished the Episcopalian church because they had the district they created that was so anti-federalist was filled with dissenters, a lot of Baptists and Lutherans. And he managed with the help of Jefferson and Washington to win and go into Congress. And of course, him being in Congress, he was the as they used to call him, Washington's prime minister in the House for the first term. He basically handled the whole agenda in the House, just as Robert Morris was doing in the Senate. So it became part of a team. And he ended up getting heavily involved. And everywhere they ran as the party of Washington, not as the Federalist parties, the parties that will give this Constitution a chance. We will work with Washington. Washington, of course, everyone knew would be elected unanimously, and he was. But he wanted to make sure he had a friendly Congress, and he did. Not that there weren't opponents. I mean, you know, you had people like Patrick Henry lying in wait, uh, Richard Henry Lee. You certainly had anti-federalists, but they didn't have they didn't have um, control of either house. He really doesn't, you know, effectively lose control. He actually has it, I'd say, for the first six years. It's only by that last year that he really begins to lose effective control of the legislature. And in that time, he's able to get what he wants. He gets a strong army, which he sends repeatedly in three successive invasions into the Ohio country. The first one leading in the greatest defeat ever suffered by an American army, but he sends another one and another one. And he gets his protective tariffs and he gets his bank Hamilton's bank plan, and he gets his national market economy. He appoints his Supreme Court, led by John Jay, and he gets he gets the government launched. And he knows everything he's doing is setting a precedent. He he lives with dignity. He he um, he creates a cabinet, which became a tradition, even though it's not in the um, Constitution. He makes journeys. He knows he's incredibly popular. So he makes these trips, these long journeys. So he visits every state. And he, so he appears in Savannah. He appears in New Hampshire. He appears later in Rhode Island. And he reaches out like his letter to the Jewish temple in, in um, Rhode Island or his going to Catholic masses in Philadelphia. He reaches out to create a, a unity that expressed a, uh, a, a openness to um, religious freedom, support of religious diversity, a strong army that can open the West and defend our borders, the Whiskey Rebellion effectively laying and collecting taxes and then using those taxes for the general welfare to begin to build dredge harbors and build lighthouses and, and build support canals. Um, gets an effective national intellectual property scheme. So many things, these are all part of his broader vision. Yeah, truly the father of our country. You need to list all yeah, those things, all right? True. right? Well, as, as, <laughs> Knox, as Knox told him, if you come back urging him to accept the presidency, which he said, you will be twice the father of our country. Now, you, you state, and it's true that everyone assumed Washington was going to be president, but there are accounts that he 
didn't necessarily want to be president. For someone so connected to this new government who put so much effort into it, how much truth is there to the, um, the, 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 the possibility that he didn't really want to go and, and assume this role? Oh, I don't think, I think it's true. I don't think he wanted to do it. That's why people trusted him with power, uh, but he always knew he was going to do it. I see. It's not that he wasn't going to do it, but he did. He really didn't want to do it. He, <laughs> he was very happy on his plantation. It was very profitable and he needed to be there to make it profitable. And he was going to have to leave again. He liked farming. He liked plantation work. Um, he liked the business practices. He was happier there. Um, I, I truly believe, and he was also thin-skinned. He never took criticism well. It really wounded him. He managed, he was like Eisenhower in this respect. He managed to, to control his temper in public. And so people thought that he was serene. But like Dwight Eisenhower, he was not serene at all. <laughs> right. uh, he was like, they were, they were, they were, you know, two of my favorite presidents, two of, I think, our greatest presidents. And they had a lot of similar attributes. They were both former generals, and but they were both political generals. Uh, more than, you know, think of Eisenhower managing the, say, D-Day, but having to get De Gaulle and Churchill and, and Patent and Montgomery to work together. I mean, that takes Good Lord. real politics. Yeah, right, it does. <laughs> and Lincoln and Washington was the same way. He had to keep all these separate states because he had a small continental army, but he mostly relied on these state militias directly run by governors, such as Governor Clinton in New York, who was a great war governor. And he had to keep them all in the field. And so he was a political general. He was very politically astute, but he was, and he managed to, he knew how to, you know, he had style. He had Virginia style. He was a, he was a, he was a swan. And so he knew how to exhibit that, but inside every slight wounded him and he would get enormously angry in private. And so, yeah, he, he was not your natural, I mean, it's not a role he loved, but he knew he deeply believed he believed in virtue. He believed in being called. He believed in providence, divine providence. And um, he thought this was his duty. And so, yeah, he, he did his duty. And, and you really don't question that. So I don't think there was any chance he wasn't going to be president. He knew he was going to be president. But I think he sincerely hoped that he wouldn't be elected. He was saying, you know, and th I felt this way when I was department head. I said, please don't have me win this. I don't want to be department <laughs> head, but it's my duty if they elect me. And I think he honestly felt the same way. He never had any real chance he was going to lose. He won unanimously. But he kept hoping that, you know, if these anti-federalists organize a coup and I don't get the job, well, at least I've dodged that bullet. And I do believe he, he felt that way. Wow. Now, you mentioned earlier his presidential journeys, his victory lap between election and inauguration up to New York was was quite the journey too. Can you tell us about that journey and perhaps comment on how Washington's world and our country had changed since those very dark days of the revolution? It was a, he didn't really know what to expect when he left, but he had basically announced his route. So unlike his trip back after resigning as after leaving New York after the revolution, people didn't know he was showing up in different towns as he was heading back to Annapolis and then Mount Vernon. And so only when he got there did they say, well, look who's here, <laughs> and, um, and threw things together quickly for him. But here, everybody knew he was coming. And he planned this trip up, and every town, there were the big, they would report in the newspaper the biggest crowds they'd ever had, whether it was Philadelphia or or Baltimore, um, or Elizabethtown, New Jersey, or New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, you can just keep going town after town after town after town as he went through. Huge crowds. He saw, and these reports were filtering back to the Capitol, to the Congress in New York. And they saw, wow, this job we created. And I don't think they fully realized that, that this president, this presidency, not just of Washington, but the role, is the visible manifestation of the unity of our country. Because all the senators represented states, all the members of Congress represented individual districts. But here, this person represented the whole country. 
and the whole country was turning out to want to see him, to cheer, to give him banquets, to give him gifts. They built ceremonial arches going into town. They built new bridges for him to cross. They had the bands out. They had little children tossing flowers. They had people in Roman togas greeting the Cincinnatus. I mean, it was a, it was something like no one in America had ever seen. And that sort of reaction, they realized that, well, as I said, this was the visible manifestation of our country. And so by the time he got to D.C., Congress realized this. And so on the fly, they started changing all their plans. They decided we can't have his inauguration in that house chamber like we were going to do. We're going to have to do it on the balcony overlooking the largest square in New York City, which was packed, which literally thousands turned out. They were standing on roofs. They were looking out of every window. This is the largest square. People couldn't even move. As one person said, I could walk across the the, the, um, the square on people's heads. It was so packed together. <laughs> wow. That's what one observer wow. wrote. And and he got up there and the cheering was just amazing. So he that's when he came up with the idea of then follow up with these other because that one, which was almost a spontaneous event, unplanned, spontaneous event. And so he plans these trips throughout the country. And of course, every president, beginning with Adams, follows up on that. They all journey around the country because they realize this is part of the role. This is part of the job. When there's a flood in Louisiana, I have to go down there. If there's a new, you know, if there's an important new factory going in or things, I got to go there. And now they have an airplane to do it. Washington had to go by carriage and the man was not young. And so he was being carted all over the place um, on these presidential these presidential trips. Now, now, Scott, I don't want you to expect that kind of reception for American POTUS if we <laughs> if we do a road trip. Just, I don't want you to be disappointed. I expect golden chariots wherever and, and I go. togas, togas, yeah, yes. togas. Oh, when when he sailed across the the from Elizabethtown to New York City, going into the thing, they had arranged they had arranged a barge for him that the best they could make it was like an Egyptian barge. Ah. They called it Cleopatra's barge. And it was all decked out and festooned and it had a little um, canopy and all the, the lead the lead um, pilots for the boats in the harbor were, were oarsmen. And so they, it was like a it was like a, a Roman galley with these with these twelve oarsmen on either side rowing and this and in it was um he was joined by, I think, John Jay and Knox in the ship. You wouldn't want to have Knox there. He'd sink the boat. Right. But then a flotilla of boats followed him with the Congress and with officials and with public citizens. And from all the ships that's out there, they were firing their cannons. I mean, it was an amazing spectacle wow. Wow. sailing into town. And literally, they... They they called it Cleopatra's barge. Secret Service would have had a field day. They would have they would have been all upset <laughs> right. if they if they had been around back then. Yeah, you know there was no there was no Secret Service at all. That is an amazing thing that Washington. Yeah, Washington basically traveled. You know, he traveled with AIDS, but he had no particular protection. And he would he wouldn't he didn't shake people's hands, but he'd bow to people, and so he'd meet people. And you know, for for fifty years. You can read accounts of people who remember seeing Washington on one of his trips. And that was like the biggest event of their life. Washington Irving remembered it till he died. The great author who was named Washington Irving in honor of Washington uh, met him on the day of his inauguration. And the great man patted him on the head and he never forgot wow. it. Wow. Yeah, that would be so. So you're named Washington after me and you patted him on the head. <laughs> Now, Ed, you obviously know your stuff about Washington, so maybe you can help us reveal a little more about his private side, okay? Okay. All right. Here's my question. So, or questions. By all accounts, he was quite the socialite, as we've talked about a little bit, taking to the dance floor every chance he got. So what did he get out of dancing? Was he doing it for politically social reasons, or was he just a big flirt? Oh, I don't think you'd call it a flirt. Okay. Because he never seemed 
to be romantically interested in women at all. I don't even think his marriage was very romantic. Yeah. It was a working operation, working business partnership mostly. But he loved to dance. He absolutely loved to dance. He was very light on his feet and he he would dance. He loved to go to parties and this had nothing I don't think it had anything to do with politics because it goes long before um he's president, long before he's politically active. He used to have dances and balls at Mount Vernon. He used to go to them to other plantations in Virginia. I just think he liked to dance. He also loved to go to plays. Um, he loved plays. He read plays. He, 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 Don Quixote was his favorite book, but he liked plays and he loved to go to the theater. So I just think that's the sort of guy he was. He, he loved to dance and he'd dance with, and, he, and then he would dance. Every, every lady wanted to dance with him. Oh, sure. So he would literally dance with every lady. It didn't matter whether she, what she looked like or, or how good she was on the floor. He made a point of dancing with every lady at, at, at a party. Well, it certainly sounds like the man had a lot on his mind. So maybe that was a good stress reliever for him. Certain hobbies he loved. He was an amazing equestrian. Yeah. So he loved to ride his horse and he loved to, uh, loved to dance. I mean, those were his favorite hobbies. Ed, best I can tell, there are 31 counties, 26 cities, 15 mountains, and countless schools, streets, and businesses named after Washington. So which do you think he would be most pleased with carrying his name? The capital city, the state of Washington, or the George Washington Bridge? Oh, I think the capital city. I mean, he laid it out for as long as he lived while Adams was president. You know, he helped negotiate that they would move the capital. The capital was intent. The city, the federal city was intentionally plopped within a, you know, within a short ride of Mount Vernon. And he helped lay it out. He brought in the designer who had been, you know, worked with him in the military. So I, I think certainly the capital, that's the one that, that he would think. I mean, I, I think he'd be happy with Washington State. Uh, I don't know if he cared much about a bridge, but I do think, <laughs> I do think the capital. I do think the capital. So he was a strong, tall man at what, six, six foot three, somewhere around there. Very athletic, tremendous horseman, as you talked about. So was this a big deal in his day? Did people give him more respect because of his physical stature? I think so. He was a large man. He was a wide man. He wasn't like Abraham Lincoln, who was taller than him. Um, Washington was 6'2", 6'3". We're not quite sure. He was very wide in the hips. He was sort of pear-shaped which made him a good equestrian because he sat solidly on that saddle. And that gave him a size. He was a head, head or half a head taller than most people. Put him next to John Adams and he'd be especially strong. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he wasn't, I mean, Jefferson was as tall, basically. There were people that tall, but he stood out and he was also substantial. And so I do think that gave him, he played on that. He dressed really sharply. He was a very fancy dresser. And he cared very much about his clothes and having his hair combed just right. That was he didn't wear a wig. That was just really his hair, and it was beautifully combed every day. He he cut an image, and he knew he did. And yes, I definitely think that both added to his sense of dignity, but also made him feel more dignified. Finally, in just a sentence or two, can you sum up his very impressive presidency and just as important, his exit from the presidency? Well, his exit was part and parcel of his presidency. It established traditions. He was he established the job. He made the job what it was. First, it was written for him. It was a script written for him, so it wouldn't be what it was like on paper, but for the fact that they were drawing up a, you know, a a play, if he liked to be an actor, drawing up a script for him. And then he fleshed it out. He served the full eight years, two terms. He, is, he, he believed in rotation in office. He believed conceptually that, that people should serve and then step out of office, return to the citizenry. Um, he deeply believed that. So he was able to practice it twice, first as general and then as president. And then he built the cabinet he um, established the things he wanted. He op- he began the opening of the Ohio country, the Western frontier, also the Southern frontier. He established, he got, his, got the Hamilton Bank plan and the various plans to build a national market economy. He defended America's interests versus other countries. 
to establish America's place. John Jay's tre treaty wasn't the greatest deal anybody ever saw, but certainly Pinckney's treaty with Spain was excellent in opening the, the, the for opening the West. So he basically carried through on his agenda. He kept America at peace, which he thought was important. He he established tradition that a president unilaterally can abrogate treaties by ending the alliance with France during um, after the French Revolution. Nobody really knew before that. Presidents had to, you know, could only enter into treaties with the advice of the Senate of the Senate. Do you need that to leave a treaty? He said, no, I'm just going to end this treaty with France to get us out of being pulled into the war between Spain and France because he believes that America should need to remain independent, as it were, and not tied to foreign alliances, where he fails. His, his biggest failure, and it was certainly his biggest regret, was that to, despite his best efforts to bridge, to build a cabinet that included basically all constitutional viewpoints, he kept out the people who were far to the left or far to the right, like a Patrick Henry, out of the government. But he brought in everything from Jefferson to Hamilton, a truly a team of rivals, if you look at who he brought into government and who he worked with, um, because he wanted a broad constitutional union. He did not believe in, in political parties. He thought they would be the bane of America. And yet they developed during his second term of office and then went wild after he left office and, and, and Adams, Hamilton on one side and Jefferson and Madison on the other went at it. Um, and that was his, his biggest regret. But I don't think any person could have avoided the inevitable development of a two-party system in America simply because it's an unintended effect of the Constitution. And uh, we all live in its shadow. What a fascinating conversation, Ed. What's next for you? Oh, I'm, I'm still back. Actually, I go back and forth because I have these books on Antarctic exploration and Shackleton. Mm -hmm. and I have books on, on um, science and religion and other areas. And so I tend to flip back and forth. Next one, we'll be back in the revolutionary era, exploring some issues in revolutionary rhetoric and the coming of the ideas that are generated out of the revolutionary rhetoric. I'll look forward to, um, doesn't won't directly involve the presidency per se, but I'll try to remember to send you a copy. Well, we'd love, love to see that. And I, I have to say again how much I enjoyed uh, this book, and really it brought Washington to focus so much more. I think a lot of us fall into the habit of seeing him as a bit of a monument, you know, a Mount Rushmore complex, and seeing him work so hard for the Constitution, for the ratification, to put that government together to be, as you showed, the father of the country, really a great um, in-depth perspective on a man in the arena, um, really doing his all to build this country. And I guess kind of a last a question for you that's very unfair. He's often been called the indispensable man. If there had been no George Washington, could any of these other men that we see among the founders have done what he did? No, I don't think so. I think there were two indispensable men. Uh, we wouldn't have had either the, the revolution wouldn't have been successful or the Constitution would have been pulled off without Washington and Franklin. Those were the two indispensable people. I think everybody else, you know, was fungible. You could have replaced, I mean, some of them were very important, and Adams or Jefferson, I'm not trying, Hamilton, they were, I'm not trying to run them down, but they weren't at that level. In fact, they both recognized it. Jefferson told um, when Franklin died, Jefferson said to Washington, you know, there are only two of you. You two, everyone in America realizes including myself, that there's you and Franklin, and then there's the rest of us. And that's Thomas Jefferson. And of course, Adams, who's always, you know, catty and sort of, you know, and everything he does, he makes virtually the same comment, but in his own nasty little way, he said, you know, when this is all over, all anybody will remember is Ben Franklin threw down a lightning bolt and up popped George Washington and we were independent. And um, I think that there is truth in those comments. And those were from you know, people who you could arguably be number two and three. I mean, excuse me, number three and four. Well, Ed, thank you so much for joining us. We we really appreciate it. We hope we hope you had a good time here on American POTUS. I had a wonderful time, and I appreciate you very much for having me on. And if you ever see the right thing for me to do next, I'll come back on again. You have a standing invitation for sure. Thanks, Ed. Thank you so much, Ed. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank Pulitzer Prize winner and best-selling author Ed Larson for joining us on this episode about George Washington. More information on all of his terrific books can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. If you have comments on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 50-plus episodes that are available on the playlist, covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from George Washington, quote, Be courteous to all, but intimate with few and let those be well tried before you give them your confidence.